It was one thing to speculate about the physiology of the house's owner in the safety of her own study at Oxford, or with James close by, and armed. It was evidently quite another to go up and knock on Don Simon Isidro's front door. Muffled by the fog, she heard the tock of hooves, the jingle of harness from Upper Thames Street, and the groaning hoot of the motor-buses. Another hoot, deeper, came from some ship on the river. The click of her heels on the dirty steps was the strike of a hammer, and her petticoats rustle, the rasp of a saw. For all the house's age, the lock on the door was relatively new, a heavy American pin-lock, oddly masked behind what must have been the original lock-plate of Elizabeth's time. It yielded readily enough to the skeleton keys she'd found at the back of her husband's handkerchief drawer. Her hands shook a little as she then operated the pick-locks in the fashion he'd taught her, partly from the sheer fear of what she was doing, and partly because, law-abiding and essentially orderly, she expected a member of the Metropolitan Police to appear behind her crying, "'Ear, now what you at?' Absurd on the face of it, she thought. It was patently obvious that no representative of the law had set foot in this square in years. She pushed her thick-lensed spectacles more firmly up onto the bridge of her nose. "'Not only breaking the law,' roared the imaginary policeman, "'but ugly and four-eyed to boot!' Slipped the picklocks and skeleton keys back into her handbag and stepped through the door. It wouldn't be full dark until five. She was perfectly safe. The hall itself was much darker than she had expected, with the wide oak doors on either side closed. Trimmed with a carved balustrade, generous steps ascended carpetless to blindness above. The passage beside them to the rear of the house was an open grave. There was, of course, no lamp. Mildly berating herself for not having foreseen that contingency, of course there wouldn't be a lamp, Lydia pushed open one of the side doors to admit a rinsed and cindery light. It showed her a key on the hall table, and turning, she closed the front door. For a time she stood undecided, debating whether to lock herself in, and observing the deleterious effects of massive amounts of adrenaline on her ability to concentrate. How would I go about charting degree of panic with inability to make a decision? The workhouse wouldn't really let me put my subjects into life-threatening situations. In the end, she turned the key but left it in the lock, and stepped cautiously through the door she had opened, into what had probably been a dining-room, but was as large as the ballroom of her aunt's house in Mayfair. It was lined, floor to ceiling, with books. Goods boxes had been stacked on top of the original ten-foot bookshelves, and planks stretched over windows and doors, so that not one square foot of the original panelling showed, and the tops of the highest ranks brushed the coffered ceiling. Yellow-backed adventure novels by Conan Doyle and Clifford Ashdown shouldered worn-calf saints' lives, antiquated chemistry texts, Carlyle, Gibbon, Desaad, Balzac, cheap modern reprints of Aeschylus and Plato, Galsworthy, Wilde, Shaw. In front of the bone-clean fireplace, a massive oak chest, strapped with leather and the only furniture in the room, held a cheap American oil lamp of clear glass and steel, the trimmed wick in about half a reservoir of oil. 
Lydia produced a match from her pocket, lit the lamp, and by its uncertain light read the titles of the several new volumes, half unwrapped from their parcel paper, which lay beside it. A French mathematics text, a German physics book by a man named Einstein, The Wind in the Willows. How much time left?